Hello, this is Jeff Otis, partner at Evergreen, and you're listening to a deep dive with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 25-minute conversation between myself and Evergreen CEO, Tyler A. And as always, thanks for listening. All views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen Golf Cal. Evergreen Golf Cal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right. Well, I'm joined by Evergreen CEO, Tyler Hay. And Tyler, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Um, I know you do a great job hosting this and I'm flattered and honored that you'd let me take a little of your time. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be good. I want to ask you a number of questions on the economy and just what's going on, things that I'm hearing from from other uh, clients and certainly from a number of investors. Um, and so let's get started here. Sounds good. Um, I'm going to start uh, and ask you a few uh, more broad economy related questions. And then I have a couple more on portfolio strategy. And then lastly, just a few kind of like lightning round questions at the end. So um, to get started, let's start with the labor market. So what effects do you see having significant long-term implications? Yeah, I mean, I hate to go back to COVID, but I think that's kind of where we started with this. Um, You know, kind of coming out of COVID, um, the work from home mentality really was, seemed like it was here to stay. And you fast forward to today and you kind of have a two tiered labor market. You got the tech firms who are, you know, laying people off left and right and um, seem to be really a sign and maybe a canary in the coal mine of things to come in the economy. And then you also have, you know, kind of the, the blue collar, you know, less skilled jobs where um, staffing is basically impossible. And I think that really this has two kinds of implications. One, if you're a real estate investor in the office markets, occupancy is a humongous unknown. If people, you know, let's say people go back to work three days a week, are you as a um, as a CEO or someone that's making decisions, can you um, really maintain the same size footprint as you did prior to COVID? If labor, maybe say um, your employees maybe go to four days a week, does, you know, are you going to reduce your footprint? So I think trying to gauge exactly where that's going to land is certainly a um, huge input if you're a um, investor in office real estate. And then I think also on, you know, kind of the, the lower skilled jobs, I mean, you go to restaurants, hotels, you know, talk about hospitals, you know, just the service industry in general, they're, they're, they're dying for workers, literally. And I think that something has got to give there. I think that either one, maybe it's consumers have a whole bunch of pent up demand you weren't traveling, you weren't going out to dinners, you know, during COVID coming out now, people are excited to be dining and doing entertainment and those types of things. And so, you know, maybe we're working through a little bit of excess pent up demand, um, or maybe this is the new norm. And if it is, I think that you'll see companies starting to turn to technology as a replacement. Do you really need someone to check you into a hotel room and hand you a key card? Couldn't you use your phone? Do you really need someone standing there as you're boarding a plane saying, here's where you should scan your boarding pass um, or a server taking order at a restaurant? I think that if this labor market at kind of, you know, the service industry's kind of lower end remains this tight, you're going to start to see companies try to substitute out uh, labor for technology. Yeah, that's a good point. 
So outside of impact on labor markets, what other economic trends could have a lasting impact on the economy? Well, again, we'll go back to kind of COVID. You know, one of the clear implications of COVID was a disrupted global supply chain, right? I mean, we know how interconnected we are. I think a lot of people are well aware of the reasons that um, jobs were outsourced to places like China, low costs of labor, companies looking to improve margins by shipping jobs essentially overseas. Well, a couple of things have changed. One is it turns out that when the global economy has a pandemic, uh, goods don't flow as efficiently. And the subsequent impact was massive disruptions for corporate supply chain and companies trying to get goods from one location to another. And I think that deglobalization is a trend that started in COVID, and I'm not sure it's going to reverse anytime soon. And the implications are significant. Certainly, there are advantages to offshoring your jobs, cost being you know the the primary one. Um, but I think companies are starting to consider, you know, is cost the only thing that matters in terms of how I think about um, running a business? And secondly, um, you heard of it, you heard it in the State of the Union address. There's just a massive, um, you know, kind of national security interest in moving the productions of certain goods, particularly, you know, chip production, back onshore. And I think that that's going to be something. That also continues. And I think that we saw a little bit of a preview of that this week with the announcement that Tesla is, is now selected Mexico as the location for one of their new plants. I think it's kind of interesting. It's not exactly onshoring, but it's maybe nearshoring. Um, so I think that that's certainly going to be a massive trend to watch. I mean, deglobalization will be will impact the job market. I think it's likely to actually go into the pro-inflation column. Um, and so what you know, we've been going so long in one direction of globalization and interconnecting this global economy to different countries. And now I see it. I see that trend starting to reverse. So that's a pretty big paradigm shift. Yeah, something to keep a close eye on for sure. Um, investors seem to be playing a whole new ball game. The Fed over the last two decades uh, has spent much of the time providing very loose monetary conditions, but today they clearly seem more committed to taming inflation, uh, obviously through rate hikes, even if it causes collateral damage in the economy. What implications will this have for investors? Well, I think, first of all, you're spot on. Inflation is undoubtedly the driving force behind the Fed's um, behavior and their rate hikes. I think that the question about inflation seems to be the only question that anybody's asking these days, rightly or wrongly. And honestly, I don't have the answer. I mean, I can sit here and give you a pretty compelling argument for why inflation could continue to run at a relatively hot rate. You know, the arguments are something like, you know, we've been printing money for far too long. COVID, really, COVID and the, the supply chain disruptions really lit the match that started the fire of inflation. Our labor market is extremely tight. That's inflationary. Um, house, the housing market, while prices have been cooling, remains incredibly undersupplied. There just haven't been enough homes built. Um, again, as I touched on earlier, moving away from a global supply chain will be more inflationary, not less. And then, you know, lastly, there's the Russian-Ukraine war, which has obviously been a real, um, really constricted energy supply and really driven uh, prices much higher. So that's kind of in the pro-inflation camp. 
if you wanted to go into the con inflation camp or the or the less inflation camp, um, you could. I happen to believe that um, we have not worked through all of the kinks from the global supply chain um, during the pandemic. Uh, there's a global supply chain pressure index that's still showing itself far above levels that we've seen in the last 20 years. Yes, it's come down from the um, height of the pandemic, but no, it's not anywhere near normal levels. So I think that, you know, as that continues to work through, that could ease inflation more than maybe um, people are expecting. Um, you have the Federal Reserve and other world central banks tight, uh, tightening. That's obviously, you know, puts the brakes on economic activity. That could also be um, disinflationary. As I talked about earlier, too, large tech companies are tightening their belts. Interesting um, stat came out recently that apartment rents um, fell for the last six months consecutively for the first time in five years. That could be a sign that inflation is starting to roll over. Um, we talked about maybe the demand of pent up or the pent up demand, you know, caused by everybody being locked inside during COVID as people start to work through that, possibly deflationary. And then I always think that technology um, technology is inherently deflationary. As you replace, you know, humans with robots, it's, you know, there's less sick days, there's less, there's there's no unions, and, and that, I think, happens to be quite disinflationary. So I would say that while initially the logic was inflation's transitory, and that was something that Jay Powell argued early, you know, coming out of um, 2020, 2021, Today, I think that that has been almost laughed at and considered a humongous whiff on his part. And now it's considered systemic or, or, or that we're in a period of structural inflation, which I think that that argument is unresolved and is something that investors should continue to monitor and, and perhaps um, keep an open mind. But it will have massive implications for sure in how you want to um, construct portfolios. Yeah, maybe even demographics, too, with the aging population in terms of uh, in the camp of lower inflation. Sure. Um, what are some portfolio management observations you would make in today's uh, investing environment? I'd say first and foremost, that the people that have been defenders of active management can declare um, that that way of managing money alive and well, um, especially um, given recent events. You know, I think that if you were to think about how how the typical investors allocated, you know, maybe a good rule of thumb or, you know, kind of yardstick would be something like 60% stocks and 40% bonds. And we'll call the stocks the sports cars for the sunny days and bonds are the SUVs for hauling things or the, you know, kind of um, tougher weather. In 2022, both cars broke down. The 60-40 portfolio was down um, 17%, worst year since 1938. So I think the idea that you can just build a 60-40 portfolio, set it and forget it, I think that logic really suffered a major blow. Well, we have uh, we run similar portfolios and our clients didn't see anywhere near that much damage done. So why is that? Okay, I'll stick with my analogy here. I'd say that there's other factors worth considering than simply the type of car, right? Two cars traveling on, on different roads can have wildly different experiences. So, for example, let's talk about the bond the bond portion. If 40% of your portfolio is in bonds, that's going to obviously have a significant impact on your return. I think that the average investor might think of 
all bonds are equal. And in fact, that's not true. Bonds maturing in one year have a much different uh, sensitivity to interest rate fluctuations than bonds that are maturing in 30 years. And for the last several decades, all we've seen is interest rates move down lower and lower, both gradually and persistently. And so said another way, it was very hard to lose money no matter what type of bond you bought. You could do no wrong. 2021 and 2022 were negative returning years for bonds, down, I think, 17% in 2022 and 4% in 2021. So really, really tough years for bonds. And at Evergreen, we decided to take a different path with our bond holdings and made a series of adjustments to portfolios, kind of like I was talking about. Maybe, yeah, we're driving the same car, but maybe we didn't we didn't choose to drive on the same roads. And I want to point out, um, while we were fortunate and, and thankful for the, the decisions that we were able to make to protect clients' portfolios, we don't always get it right. But this this actually turned out to be quite a good move, a good, a good move in terms of active, actively managing client portfolios. Um, so. Well, what about cash? I mean, given all the uncertainty you're discussing, do you think investors should just sit on the sidelines and wait for the bounce while once the once the market bottoms? We're not showing video, but I'm rubbing my face. I hate this logic in normal conditions, but I particularly hate it now. Here's why. Going back to 1928, the stock market is up 68% of the time. Would you play a game in Vegas where the house won 68% of the time? Probably not. If you were, you better get a lot of free drink tickets. And if you consider, and then also consider that only six times since 1928 has the stock market seen a decline of 20% or greater. And three of those times happened during the 1930s. So I think this idea of getting, you know, super in the bunker, super protectionary, I think it gets a little bit overblown unless you believe that 95 years is not a long enough sample set and that we're entering an era, you know, akin to the Great Depression, you know, save for that. I have a hard time buying into that. I mean, history's full of wars, bubbles, political missteps, and yet somehow markets continue to move higher. And I think the idea of just sitting there waiting to pick a bottom is silly. I mean, one of our, our business partners' great sayings on trying to pick a market bottom is the only thing you get is a stinky finger. Um, so I think that that, you know, sitting on cash is – in my mind, a dangerous you're 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 betting you're betting against the odds and you're betting that you're gonna be able to know when it's a bottom and 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 you're betting against the odds, right? That, and I think even more more paradoxically is you're gonna say, I'm gonna sit on cash because I can accurately predict when the market, which doesn't go down as much as it goes up, but I'm gonna figure out when it's gonna go down. And then, oh by the way, while I sit on cash, I'm paying an enormous tax right now in the ter- in the sense of inflation. So I'm and by the way, I'm sitting on cash because I'm worried about inflation. And then I'm going to time this market bottom and then I'm going to deploy money at the perfect time. To me, it makes none of it makes sense. I mean, this is crazy, crazy logic to me. So, I mean, does cash make sense? Sure. Does sitting on cash in large quantities, getting ready to deploy your money at the absolute bottom make sense to me? No, I think it's insane investing. 
oh my three-year-old who we're working with right now on potty talk would love your uh would love your stinky finger saying <laughs> um so anyways all right so if that's if that's what investors shouldn't be doing then what should they be doing i think right now you know i get asked this a lot of like oh what do you think about the stock market and what do you think about the stock market and i guess i'm like i i asked them the same question I'm like if i said that i gave you the same amount of points for shooting a free throw as i do shooting a three-pointer which would you shoot and everyone's like i'd shoot a free throw and i'm like well there's a free throw available to you right now and that's what's gone on in corporate bond rates you can buy high quality corporate bonds say five-year maturities paying you around six or seven percent that seems to me to be very appealing, unless you're in the camp, unless you're in the camp, and we talked about the investment implications of inflation, unless you're in the camp that inflation is going to run at 6%, 5 or 6% for the next five years and will refuse to normalize, unless you believe that, which I obviously don't believe in, I don't think that that's a consensus belief at, you know, within our investment committee. I think the ability to be locking in very attractive yields for uh, people looking for cash flow. I think that that's a really, really concrete first step. And it's a lot easier than trying to kind of time and predict exactly what's going on in the markets. I'd also start looking at high quality tech companies. I mean, everyone's like, oh, when's the next shoe going to drop in the stock market? And the reality is when it comes to a lot of these tech companies, both shoes have already dropped. I mean, you have high quality companies down 50, 60, 70 percent. And sure, not all of them are high quality, but some are. And, you know, for compliance reasons, we don't get into naming companies on the call, but you can go through the list and look, if you look up NASDAQ biggest decliners, yeah, you're going to go through and see some names that you might not be familiar with. And you're going to see some other names that you're like, this company is going to be around for five or 10 years. So I think that high quality tech companies that have already been hammered is an area that investors should be looking at. I also think that companies that have strong, durable cash flow and are and, and really healthy balance sheets. Um, those companies should be able to kind of navigate um, should inflation prove tougher to tame than than even I'm expecting. So I do think that companies like that make sense, maybe dividend paying companies. We obviously own those for clients as well. I think it's also worthwhile. And this is, you know, I think that one of the things that Evergreen does that's a little bit different than most firms is we'll stick our neck out and say things that are maybe unpopular at the moment. But I think it's reasonable to look to start to look at international markets relative to U.S. markets. You look at whether it's emerging or developed international and the, the length of outperformance and the magnitude of outperformance by U.S. companies or by U.S. stocks in general is staggering. I remember, Jeff, probably about the same time you were entering uh, Evergreen, all the talk was around, uh, well, how are you guys playing the BRIC companies, BRIC countries? And for people that maybe forget or <laughs> don't remember, that's Brazil, Russia, India, and China. I recommend bringing those stocks up at a cocktail party and seeing how long someone listens to you for. So it's amazing both how quickly uh, something that was once so in favor falls out of favor. But I also think it's important to remember that it comes back into favor. And so I think that, you know, I think that starting to add to international um, your international equity holdings um, is reasonable at this time. So those are sort of the macro trends. I mean, we see, I mean, speaking of you know macro trend reversals, look what you've seen in terms of growth relative to value stocks. So the tide does go out and the tide does come back in. So 
those are kind of the things that we're looking at at Evergreen. And I think any good investor should be considering as well. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm hearing these themes and these conversations every single day, both with clients who have already hired us and then a ton of investors who are, you know, listening in on what we're doing, thinking about working with us, thinking about maybe continuing to do it themselves and things like that. So all these themes I'm, I'm hearing daily. So it's really good to hear your your uh, insights into what's going on. And I appreciate your time today. I'm going to get you out of here with the little lightning round. All right. Um, little lightning round time with with the uh, the CEO. So uh, favorite bottle of wine. Favorite bottle. Well, I like Pinot Noirs from California, so I'll go with Marcuson. Marcuson Pinot Noir. Which area? It's in Northern California. Nice. Okay. Uh, favorite golf course. That I played or that I want to play. I mean, you can, I guess, answer both. Okay. Yeah. Whatever you played. My, uh, probably Cypress, just because of where it's ranked. But if I had to play one course for the rest of my life, it'd probably be San Francisco Golf Club. And then, of course, I want to play, which I'm afraid I may never play, is Augusta National. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, okay, last one. Favorite travel destination? Favorite place to go? would have to probably be Paris with my wife. That's a really fun city, unbelievable food, unbelievable history. And then on our my bucket list is I want to go eat sushi in Tokyo. So there's your lightning round. Well, she would love that answer, and I hope she's still listening at this point in the conversation. So well, there's nobody still listening, Jeff, and certainly not her. Yeah, people probably bounced off right before the lightning round. But anyways, this, all right. Well, this was shorter than I normally do, so everybody should maybe they sit on. It was good. It was good. I appreciate your insights. Thanks for jumping on with us and we'll get you on again. It won't be as long next time. Thanks, Jeff. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.